Bad Impressions. We're really excited to bring you a new guest, our first international guest to the podcast. Today we have Jeroen Kortout, who's joining us from Salesflare. Do you want to give an intro to yourself, Jeroen? Yeah, I'm actually joining you from uh, Antwerp in Belgium. It's uh, across the, the pond for you, I guess. I'm actually uh, a US citizen as well, so not fully, fully international. So you're helping us dip our toe in, with starting with the US citizen. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Exactly. I'm both. I'm I'm both an, uh, a U.S. citizen and, and Belgian. My parents are Belgian, but we lived in the States when I was when I was very small. Hence the passport. I was born in uh, in New York State. Oh wow! I'm co-founder and CEO of Salesflare, and uh, Salesflare is a CRM system, a sales CRM specifically for small and medium-sized businesses who sell B2B. That makes it much easier to keep track of your customers because it automates much of what you normally do in a CRM for you. Fantastic. Yeah. CRM automation is a, a hot topic, especially for, you know, any, any medium business users and small as well. But um, I think a lot of medium businesses that we speak to both for the show and in our professional lives are really starting to have a mind towards automation because you know they're getting that size where things are beginning to get a little out of hand and they get the sense they should be doing things a little less manually mm -hmm. we will get to the crm chat but there were there were a couple topics we wanted to cover first that i think speak a little bit more just to your particular experience running a uh, business that itself is thriving but not as large as some of its competitors and, and you know having to take on larger enterprises and the first one that you mentioned to us was organizing your teams around habits and not goals being helpful and productive. So as you mentioned, we are in a, an extremely busy space. The CRM space is like, I think on g2.com alone, there's more than 650 CRMs listed today. Many of those have a, an enormous amount of money. Well, at least some of those have. They are uh, or publicly listed companies or they've raised tens of millions. Plus the space is just extremely saturated. It is the biggest enterprise software uh, space in the world because it's so important to businesses, but there's a lot of players on it. So that makes that us um, growing from, let's say the more easy marketing channels and the more easy approaches is very hard. We cannot just throw money at ads and, and see the revenue come in. We really need to build stuff out and deliver value on a day-to-day -day basis. What we used to do in the past to give ourselves direction is set forward what kind of metrics we were uh, looking to reach in a year. And then we would rally team around that, see how we're going to achieve that. But what we noticed after a few years of doing that is that the things that we most successfully met were not at all the sort of metrics that said, for instance, let's grow our revenue uh, month over month uh, by this much or let's reduce our churn that much because this is, is a nice goal towards the end of the year but it doesn't directly translate into stuff you do on a on a daily weekly monthly basis and the things that actually we did manage to do and where we were very successful were the things that were actually immediately translatable to things on a daily weekly monthly basis so what we decided at that point was that maybe instead of just putting goals the numeric ones, which sort of measure success, we would instill habits. And that, that means we would def define what sort of things we would do on, uh, and it's mostly monthly basis or for us, some things quarterly, some things bi-monthly, 
the things we would do to then reach these results. Well, for instance, we have currently it's one feature a month, one onboarding improvement, one support approach improvements, a few growth improvements, uh, an SEO article and, and stuff like that. If we do these things every month consistently, then in the end of the year, we see that we were successful at the other stuff as well, like the end results, because those are the things that drive us towards that. Now, the thing is, it's, it's much easier to keep up with this kind of stuff. It's also way more motivating because we, throughout the year, we already see we're hitting these habits that we put forward, like we're hitting the goals when it comes to that. So it, it only helps us to, to be more successful at building this value consistently. So you're, you're mostly talking uh, about building habits uh, as a company, as an entity, and really empowering your, your employees and your team to, you know, foster that as, as well. So kind of like spreading it across the, the board for in terms of like responsibility um, of, of the growth of, of the company by developing these habits. Yeah, that's correct. This is, of course, one uh, aspect. Things we do next to that is really focusing on uh, sharpening the saws, they say all the time. We have bi-weekly meetings in which we see what's going well and what's not going well. And then we find solutions for not, what's not going well. And we learn from what's going well. That's our team meeting. We also do some demos there to show what we've been doing. We have uh, one-on-ones, which most companies have, I suppose. We have daily stand-up meetings to share what we're doing. We do lots of things to keep information flowing, to make sure that we uh, create feedback loops within the company. And then next to that, we have this direction throughout the year, which are these habits that then lead to us uh, reaching the results and always like improving uh, along the way. It definitely creates consistency across the company more so than just issuing some sort of departmental type goals would. Do you find that people feel that this is an approach that gives them more autonomy than other companies they've worked at, less autonomy, the same amount? It sounds like it's it's fairly flexible in terms of how they accomplish the habits, but I am curious as to how much more you guys ever focus on a process beyond just build the habit itself. No, it's uh, definitely more autonomy, more empowerment, more motivation as well. Coincidentally, one of my colleagues, uh, Carrie, she asked to make the things she's working on even more concrete. And we're going to meet about that next week because she finds that she can like most clearly define in terms of habits and those things she needs to do. That motivates her way more on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to see how we can even make it sharper for her when it comes to her responsibilities. Yeah, that makes sense. It's definitely, I think, easier to exercise your autonomy when you have some really clear and concrete things to anchor it to first nebulous concepts like do your best to drive five hundred thousand dollars what is my best etc so i can see how that would help with autonomy rather than uh restrict it that's definitely a very interesting approach versus the very standard goals approach that so many other companies in your space i imagine are using from what I know of, of people who've worked at any CRM software companies, they do seem to be very goal oriented, especially around revenue and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, all, all SaaS companies, I would say it's, it's very easily, easily measurable, but it also makes that you start to focus a bit on end results, metrics, uh, rather than what you're going to do to get there.
guys think a lot about sales automation and maintaining the parts that keep sales human while allowing the right things to be roboticized, which I think is very interesting to us. I guess some of us have fielded a lot of sales materials in the CRM industry and CRM adjacent industries and some of our roles. And it seems to be kind of an odd time for sales automation and that I know a lot of people who are getting, for instance, emails that they're surprised aren't automated, they find, and simultaneously getting automated emails in situations where they're saying, I can't believe this guy decided to automate this. Like, there's really a like, hey, bud, how you doing? You hanging in there email and it's automated? <laughs> like, what? So it'd be interesting to hear uh, you guys approach on that. It's a space that definitely is developing. Like, the sales automation tools aren't around for super long. I think it's something from the last, I don't know, seven, eight years. Depends mainstream adoption probably the last four years or so so people are still looking for their ways and many people don't think it's uh, all the way through when they're automating something the general rule that we apply and that we try to help our customers apply is try to automate when it makes you more human when it actually improves the customer uh, relationship and when it improves your daily job at the same time, rather than automating something and, and making you seem like a robot towards the customer, it might make that you have less work. But if the, the less work is going to have a negative impact, it doesn't make sense uh, either. So the way we usually look at it is first, when you're doing something, you do it manually, especially when you're communicating with customers and you're trying to automate that. The danger is with immediately automating something is that when you do that, it's very hard to apply empathy. All of a sudden, the people at the other side become numbers rather than then people you're communicating with. It's only when you've done it manually with probably a few tens of people and each time thinking through like, okay, what, what would it be that they expect? Uh, where are they coming from? What's their context? When you do that repeatedly, after... Yeah, let's say a few tens, you'll, you'll find that there is a recurring pattern and you've been able to do that with empathy. And then it's probably a good moment to start automating it because as the routine and starts kicking in, it doesn't make sense anymore to do it manually, right? You've sort of nailed it after all these times and then it's a good moment to automate. So it's a sort of the nail it then scale it approach rather than just saying okay there this push a button automate then you usually come in in really weird uh situations where people get something and they're like why is this automate how does this make sense we, we personally believe very strongly that automation is important and is here to stay because it helps you actually spend more quality time with customers like Back in the day, people would spend an enormous amount of time inputting data into a CRM. They would spend an enormous amount of time sending all these kind of follow-up emails that they could have automated, things like that. If you automate that, it frees up time and you can spend that more on quality time with customers where you actually try to understand them, you listen to them, you, you know, this is the good time. This is the time you should be able to spend. And then the rest you can leave to the robots, uh, let's say. And I think people nowadays don't mind that some of the things are automated. You almost expect it, like you get an email and 
you're sort of surprised when it's not automated. But automating it the wrong way, that's, that's where things then go the, the wrong direction, let's say. Piggybacking off of just that, that last statement, what's like the, the wrong way in your opinion or in your experience to, to automate some of these uh, you know, email solutions and those kind of things? Yeah, general rule is if it's if it's just doesn't seem human if it leaves a bad impression. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to to give you some some bad examples is for instance you overgeneralize something so that it always fits for everyone. For instance, when you get these LinkedIn messages that say, "I see you're very active in the internet. Let's connect." We have so much in common. That doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. I get an airport optimization firm sending me that, which was wild. I really wanted to reply, you know, you're right. All my airports have been pretty suboptimal lately. But it wasn't (laughs) even the kind of LinkedIn message you could reply to that way. But it, it was amazing how confident they were that I was in the airport optimization field. Yeah, yeah, the the accuracy of the LinkedIn filters definitely don't help there either. I have a presentation somewhere where I go through a lot of cases where it goes wrong. I I once did a presentation for software development companies and they have quite a reputation nowadays. I don't know whether you guys get a lot of those, but I'm in uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, FAMSAS on a regular basis. Uh, with offers to do our software development and we just get the the craziest messages. Sorry, that was my dog scratching my ear. I think piggybacking off of David's point on that, where do you see kind of the perfect cross between automation and personalization? Because to Lee's example of, you know, (laughs) airport optimization and being on the internet and at what point does it, does personalization matter or not? First, there's multiple levels to personalization. Nowadays, you can go quite far when it comes to data collection. There's so much information available beyond, preferably beyond high first name, because that's not really, really personalization. Everything has high first name nowadays. It doesn't make a real difference anymore. Part of that data collection, you can probably automate. Part of it, you also need to have a look at and really go through. For instance, when we contact podcasts to get on, we have a a list we we get from a search engine, but then we also go through it manually to make sure we don't contact podcasts that have nothing to do with what we do. Like, for instance, uh, we selected sales and then there's some in there for real estate. I mean, I I have nothing to share about real estate and we don't sell to real estate, so it, it, it doesn't matter. So... A manual step is usually required there in between the automation, also sometimes to just clean up some data. Then you can use that to segment and personalize deeper from there. And then some people, when it really is about more high value interactions, also like to go a step beyond that and do some manual research and then personalize emails even further or messages even further depending on what they find there and then the next step of course is is doing it fully manually (laughs) but very often what you can do as well is do the first reach out as automated as possible 
and then when people reply obviously take it over in a manual way i don't i don't think for instance throwing a chatbot in there will be uh, the right solution i mean you will you will lose the, the the small amount of people that actually reply to your emails and, and get interested people do seem to want to throw a chatbot at literally everything these days feels like it, people think every situation requires a chatbot I think we're sort of over the hype now, but yes, the most annoying one is the one of, of Intercom itself, if you ask me. I've already wondered why they uh, give such a bad experience as a chat service company, but yes, it's getting quite annoying. Although I think quite soon we'll see actually useful chatbots. If you look at all the things you can nowadays do with uh, the latest artificial intelligence, the ones from OpenAI, GPT-3 and all that, it's, it starts becoming something useful but not quite there yet, I think. What are some standard tips that you would state to take someone from, you know, a normal user to, to a power user? You know, what are what are some of those top 10 tips or if you got two, that's fine as well. I actually do a webinar every two weeks with 10 things you can do to close more deals with a CRM. If I share something here, it I, I start with the basics because most companies don't have the basics, right? And to be successful with CRM, there's a few very basic things which... Most companies don't do, and if you do, you're ahead of uh, probably 99% actually of companies. One is figuring out what you need a CRM for. If you're a real estate company, then you have very specific needs and there's CRMs for that. If you are an e-commerce company, you're more into getting repeat sales and tracking your orders and all this kind of stuff. There's CRMs for that. If you have uh, some sort of list, like an email list, with which you drive a smaller amount of high value deals, there's a sort of email marketing CRMs. If you are, on the other hand, a B2B company trying to follow up leads better, there's CRMs for that, it's called sales CRM. So I'd, first of all, think about what you need because just typing CRM into Google will definitely show you stuff, but it might not be well fit for you. Then secondly, don't just try one, try some and try them with your team. The thing is the, the success of a CRM implementation is fully defined by whether your team uses it or not. If they don't use it, you will see nothing happening in there. No data will appear in the CRM and everything you're trying to do with it will fail because it's all dependent on whether the data is there, whether it's complete, accurate and the way you expect it to be. So the best thing is when you're selecting something, involve your team. First of all, you create buy-in by doing that, which is good. Secondly, you'll also select something they want to use, which is good. And you have some extra views on it. So that's super important. And then from there, if you select something that is fit for what you're trying to do and your team feels like, oh, this is something we can use. Then the third thing is probably to be successful is not just focusing your training for the team on what can this thing do and how does it work and making sure they understand all that, but also agreeing on some simple guidelines within your team, like how are we going to use this? Because if you don't agree collectively on how you're going to use this, a CRM can be used in many ways. 
and fields that you have in there can be filled out in many ways. People can interpret the stages in the sales process in different ways. You could put messages in there in different ways. If you all do it differently, it's going to be a huge mess and it's going to be very, very hard to collaborate in it or hand over things, all this kind of stuff. Even reporting on the data you have in there, it's super hard. I don't think it, it should take more than an hour, but just think through the basic processes you have in there. How are you going to fill out these and that, those fields, which are really important and which are not, things like that. It will increase your success rates really by a lot, but that's also just after the first two steps, which are probably even more important. That seems to be like a lot of the cases when we start talking about advertising platforms and DMPs and CDPs and all of the things about like data collection is you got to know going in like what you're what you're wanting to do, because so many times there's so many other like platforms that are out there that all do basically the same thing and they are all slightly built differently. You know, we always talk also mm -hmm. about, you know, ad verification or viewability and those kind of things. Like all of those three main big platforms, they all do the same thing now, but they all started doing three different things. And, and so realistically, what your, your base of what you're wanting to do should kind of guide you to one of the major three or whatever doing those kind of things. So I think that that's absolutely like something that should never go under highlighted is really like establish like what you want and what you actually need. And then as you said, sample and test and, and do full vettings. Don't just get like, you know, RFIs and RFPs and those kind of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Select a few and kick the tires a little bit on it, both in terms of integrations that they can do or, you know, just usability uh, in, in terms of those kind of things. Is there things that one software can do, but it'll completely like rework and change your, your workflow. Then you're getting the value out of the, the CRM or the, whatever platform you're choosing. Then you will then see an ROI on it because you'll actually use it and because you actually know what it can do and what it can't do. Forgot about the company sending RFPs and stuff. This is probably the worst way of selecting. I mean, it, it tells you whether it checks off predefined features lists, which is nice, but it doesn't tell you anything about whether people are going to want to use it. It's maybe a step between sort of having your pre-selection then doing a further selection. But then what I think you should do is select three or four CRMs, maybe two, but that's, uh, that's already risky and try those with your team and then see which ones they see themselves using, because that's even more important than the features you ideally want in a, in the software. The basis is really uh, whether they're going to use it or not. Yeah, I'm pretty anti-RFP myself comprehensively, both on the issuing for finding technology to utilize in a marketing services agency, uh, and I'm against receiving and responding to them as a marketing <laughs> services agency. Uh, one of my first jobs, the CEO had this whole screed about why we didn't respond to RFPs, and back then he seemed crazy, but the more and more I go, the more I've seen the ones where... I mean, e even if you just hit on the, they know what they're going to do. This is just an exercise for someone to look less biased. That already accounts for 40% of them. <laughs> and then when you get to, you know, the 60% that really even are a genuine RFP, you run into the, the issue you noted, which is, it's just the worst kind of ticking the boxes exercise that generally doesn't interface with a lot of the human organization. You noted trying these things with your teams you know, especially at large organizations, RFPs are really just very particular back scratches for very senior people. 
Yeah, how it keeps the purchasing people busy. And, and on the other hand, also, if you see that it's written for some other provider, then don't even bother filling it out because you already know that they're going to select someone else. The criteria are written for someone else. I think even the best intended RFPs are, are still slightly flawed in terms of like they just try to lowest common denominator like everything. And mm -hmm. it is an attempt to put all these platforms like in some sort of matrix in terms of like making a, a, a decision. But then there's there's definitely times where it's like, well, we know this partner is going to get the contract, but we just have to like make the appearance of this RFP process. So them themselves by sending an RFP is, is a box check. And then a lot of times the people like crafting the RFP are probably very knowledgeable in the space, but at times they still might not know what they don't know kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then then your, your RFP could have some pretty glaring omissions potentially in terms of this this one service provider that might do something that, that you've never heard of and, and it's not in the RFP and there's not really a great spot for them to put that in. And so, yeah, there's got to be something to kind of pull the herd uh, a little bit in terms of, you know, making a very uh, selective approach. But the RFP just has some inherent flaws. Definitely. That just makes it really like tough, you know, to, to break through or even to shine in, in the best way you possibly can. We could probably do a whole uh, uh, extra episode about RFPs. Yeah, and you mentioned keeping purchasing people busy. The rise of the procurement industrial complex and marketing and sales organizations <laughs> where there's this whole massive, powerful team of people just redlining things and asking if any random number could be lower. You know, yeah. like, they're, like, underlining your date of birth. They're like, could this number be lower? You're like, what? no, you're not just supposed to find everything on every form and, and be yeah. like, number go down. Oh, actually, when I when I, I used to sell to pharma companies back in the in the past, oh. and uh, I would usually ask the the business people like, so what is the discount that they expect to get the purchasing department? Because they usually have some sort of uh, target. It's usually something like five percent, uh, and then they would say it's five percent. I would just up the prices by five percent. I would give them five percent, and that was it. It it's like one of my favorites, which is uh, added value and buying like sponsorship media. Similarly, a lot of purchasing media agencies target a certain amount of added value. And so, yeah, same thing. Exactly. Well, this package doesn't have any added value. Okay, well, what if I just up the price of everything but this one thing and make this one thing free so it's added value? Oh, great. Yep. We, d we did our job. Uh, the closest I, I think I ever came to getting in trouble was a, a McKinsey audit where they found the added value stuff at the agency in question. And I was like, I am not going in that room and directly telling anyone this is real. That sounds <laughs> semi-legal. <laughs> the webinar that you do, the, the 10 Basics of CRM, where can, uh, where can our listeners catch that? Uh, if you just go to our homepage and then you scroll a bit down or you spend some time on the page, all of a sudden there will be this bar at the top and um, there you can sign up. It's 10 ways to close more deals uh, with a CRM. And I explained specifically with Salesflare, but it applies um, more generally as well. If you like, I can pass you the link afterwards. So you can put it in the show notes. Yeah, great. We'll put that in the description. So anyone hearing this who, who would like to see the full 10 can go check that out. definitely given us um, a few 
answers to this question without hearing it, but we do have to ask you the traditional question of the show, uh, which is what's something, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily up your alley in terms of CRM or anything else, just in the general realm of sales, marketing, marketing organizations, software organizations, whatever that you know you deal with in your, your daily life that's really not going so well right now and you either see you know like a real industry industry-wide turn on or eliminated entirely i think uh the tendency to push customers farther and farther away as you're a software company and everything is measurable and you have data about everything and you can automate things to a to a large extent what software companies try to do more and more is eliminate everything that has to do with the customer try to automate as much as possible and make it super super on the, on the one hand productive and efficient and all that but on the other hand they just lose a sense of reality they have very superficial customer relationships and often you know you, you don't know who you're building your product for you don't know what people want just they put votes somewhere and you don't know why they put these votes you know <laughs> All these kind of things, it's just really, really weird. And it's almost an opportunity for other SaaS companies to make a difference, is to pull your customers a bit closer, develop real relationships with them, really listen to them. Because really, the, the worst thing you can do is you launch a SaaS company, and instead of really talking to people and guiding them through your software and all that, you just put some link live and you say, sign up here. And what you'll see is that people sign up, They'll try out stuff and at some point you're like, oh, this is really weird and they'll go away. But you have no idea why, because you weren't there with them. What you can do, of course, is look at some videos and see them like clicking. And <laughs> But you have no background, no context. Uh, you have no way of uh, improving your product. And uh, the company will probably not survive very long, unless it's a very, very simple product. But even then, uh, I don't believe any product can be that simple that you cannot have this kind of issue where you, you, you don't know what's going wrong, although there's something really wrong and nobody wants to tell you because they're just so far away from you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many companies have seen success in my lifetime with a very clear focus on the customer and everyone knows that, but I do think a lot of people miss how much of that focus is very qualitative and high touch and how that's important and do get enticed by all the modern bells whistles and highly collectible metrics so when they hear customer obsessed they think oh yeah we're, we're obsessed with building an elaborate rat trap basically like <laughs> that's being customer obsessed like ensnaring every tiny piece of data they generate versus being really interested in, you know, interviewing and, and collaboratively working on your software with customers and all that value. Yeah, I think there's basically two ways of growing nowadays. Either you do it this way and you really focus on your customers, try to make things better, work with them, create a fan base that is really happy and that you have a good relationship with, or you raise a lot of money, throw it at ads, you're not necessarily uh, profitable when it comes to cost towards customer lifetime value and all this kind of stuff, but you just keep growing at all costs and you let VCs pump up your company. Uh, that's the other way. I wonder if there's perhaps like a, a documentary that's really popular in the States the last two weeks that 
shows potentially a downside to that. I don't know if anyone's caught the WeWork documentary yet. I've just finished the book, actually. Uh, the book Billion Dollar Loser, written by Reeves Wiedemann. It's uh, lying here behind me. It was amazing. And I'm currently reading another one, uh, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital. Sort of a similar story, but a bit older. Those are really nice stories to read if you want to uh, understand how not to do things. Yeah, uh, to make a very long story short, we worked at a firm that had WeWork as a client and our guest on episode nine, is nine Nicole, was formerly the global director of marketing at WeWork. And we all had a collective journey of seeing rather firsthand how many of those information systems about being a people data company were um, less than real. Yeah. Uh, so to your point there, love your customers and do right by them or become a giant flaming capital fuel fired disaster. You know, ho hopefully it becomes less appealing to do the latter in the future. Well, we'll see. More and more VC capital is uh, being raised than ever. We'll see when it, this reaches a peak or if the, the, the way of investing changes. But at this moment, I don't see it changing uh, too quickly. Anyway, uh, Jeroen, thank you for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. This was fun. Yeah, and, and again, just uh, if anyone who's more interested in more in-depth info can go to Salesforce website and check out Jeroen's webinar on 10 ways to close more deals with CRM. This has been another episode of Bad Impressions. Thank you for tuning in.